when we're looking to make change, it's great to make change in your own life. I think that's really important. Um, and I think it's really fulfilling, but also looking for how can we change these larger systems in the way that we can. Hello, and welcome to Talking Plants and Animals. I'm Josh Linz. This episode, I speak with the founder and executive director of Reimagine Agriculture, Alison Penner, about transforming our food system with technology, education, and political pressure. On to the show. I got my second vaccination, so exciting. Um, and so yeah, so I've, I'm having a wonderful week. How are you? I'm really good. Um, Thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, being on the show. Um, yeah, I just got my second vaccination pretty recently too, so I'm pretty pumped about that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, how bad was your? What was your reaction like to it? Um, uh, it was a little worse than the first one. I did have a bit of nausea and you know uh, headache, and uh, I wasn't feeling too good. But it only lasted about a day, less than a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been so exciting that we have, like, after months and months, it's just like, oh, now we, we all have access to these vaccinations. Yeah, yeah, finally. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, hopefully the whole patent thing can get sorted out, and I, I it's, yeah. But yeah. on to onto, onto the show. Um, I, uh, for Just for our listeners, um, if you could give a little uh, introduction for, of yourself. Just for people who don't sure. know. Uh, so my name is Allison Penner. I'm the founder and executive director of Reimagine Agriculture. Uh, so I can give a brief 30 seconds introduction to Reimagine Agriculture. So we are a nonprofit based in Canada, and we work on problems in the agricultural si- uh, system through an ethical, environmental, and human health lens. Um, so we really work to understand kind of the system, understand the components that are going on here, and understand the wide-scale changes that need to occur uh, for the betterment of society. Perfect. Perfect. So, so yeah, your, your organization is about um, the future of our food systems and the future of the planet, how it, how it links together with, you know, um, especially the, the political aspect of it, right? Um, do you, I, I have the question of like, do you think the agricultural, an agricultural revolution is inevitable? I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but, but how do you see that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So yes, so as you're identified, uh, we work in three ways. And so the first one is building alliances. So we work with other organizations um, on mutual projects or when people want to bring agriculture more into their work. Uh, the second way we work is knowledge mobilization. So kind of action-based or uh, education, which we desperately need. Um, uh, we have very kind of little education that's tangible on these world issues in our schools and in our universities right now. The last thing I'd say identify is policy campaigns, which is a key component of our work. Um, it's sending volunteers to shops there at P. So uh, on, on specific policy asks uh, based on the agricultural system. Um, so when you ask kind of, is the agricultural revolution coming? I mean, I think the, gr- <laughs> the great news is I think it has to be. Um, when we are seeing the scale of inefficiencies and externalities that are happening right now, um, it's really unprecedented. I think in some ways, when we look at the history of food, we can actually see it to be quite a success story, which is that we went from very few people having enough food to a lot more people having enough food. That being said, uh, 
now that kind of the, for the typical person in Canada, um, we are quite a wealthy country and so most people can have access to the food they need. Um, there's been a lot of difficulties that have come with that, which is that we're not um, looking at the general effects of the techniques we're using. Um, because the focus used to be, we need to produce more food, we need to produce enough food. But now that we've done that, we've really gone to this phase of commoditization of food um, and looking at it kind of from a profit motive perspective. And that's led to some serious consequences uh, across, um, across the industry, across the world that I think we're really starting to see um, with the amount of population growth that we are expecting to have. I think that it will necessarily have to happen because of that. I think it will necessarily have to happen because we don't have enough land. Um, so if you look at the total amount of land, um, so let's say there's a graph that's 100% of the land available on Earth, because most of, of course, the space on Earth is oceans. So if we look at 100% of the land, 71% of li is livable, and about 50% is used for agriculture. Uh, so that's a significant amount in terms of all of the land we have. Um, so I think maybe this is just the pragmatist in me, but I think these things should change because they need, like they, they really should change, but they will also change because they absolutely need to change. We have, we have run out of more land to use for agriculture. Yeah, so, so change is inevitable, but it, it's just depending on, you know, it's, it's up to us to shape how that change happens, right? And I think that's kind of like the purpose of reimagine agriculture is because um, it's coming. So how do we want to, to, to shape the future? We can't really necessarily control every aspect of it, but, but yeah. Um, can you describe like the, the, the power centers involved that you're trying to influence? Like there's, 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 you know, corporations, capital mm -hmm. who are profit is their motive. Um, then there are, governments who yeah, have various motives um and then there are you know there are other groups that have different different you know different movements that might be aligned with with our kind of way of thinking so how mm -hmm. can how do you combine the, how do you you know effectively leverage those power centers that's a great question. Um, yes, so I think as as you discussed that, I think uh, I really appreciate how you focused on that and thought about that because I think that that's a lot of what I think about as well is not only, you know, hey, people need to know about thing, this thing, but really how do I, what's the change that needs to occur? And then like, how can I work backwards from that and see the tangible way to go about it? Um, and I can share kind of reimagine agriculture's philosophy or kind of how we've done this. So I'll start with building alliances. Um, so for us, uh, a lot of the problems in agriculture, if I was to kind of nail it down to two things, it would be scope and legitimacy. Um, and so what I mean by scope is that everyone, you know, truly everyone is affected by agriculture, uh, no matter kind of what sector that you work in, you are affected to some degree. And I think a lot of the sectors that are really heavily impacted um, don't have an awareness of these global issues. So this includes you know, international development, working on poverty relief uh, and food security. Um, but even kind of the broader sectors, uh, we've seen that they, the effects of agriculture 
truly affect everyone. Everyone needs to eat. Um, but the awareness of that is very, very small. So even in the environmental movement, that's still something that we're just kind of starting to see happen is agricultural conversations happening there. Um, one is one, of course, the key effects. And the same with health. Uh, you know, this global pandemic tells us very clearly that uh, our relationships with animals and our continuing relationships with animals um, have really significant and severe health consequences in a way that we don't have when we uh, focus primarily on plants and when we didn't have factory farms. So we can understand kind of all of that as an issue with scope. People don't understand that it affects them. And then I think the second thing is legitimacy. Um, a lot of people don't see agricultural issues as legitimate problems. Um, and I think there's a few understandable reasons for this, which is one, you almost never see the direct effects of agriculture. Uh, so I think that this is true for a lot of things, but at least for energy, you know, I have to go pay my energy bill every month. And I, you know, I'm thinking about how much energy I'm using and that kind of stuff. When I go to the grocery store, I really don't have any kind of a metric for this is how much the food I'm eating is affecting the world. This is how it's affecting the world. All I can really say is, oh, this is about how much it costs me. And so that's led a lot of the focus of our food system to be on, uh, you know, the price of food, the taste of food, but not necessarily the other uh, effects of it, because those effects are so indirect. Uh, so I'll take kind of... Um, so I'll talk about this kind of in, in the lens of the work we do and, and the ways we do our work. So building alliances. So building alliances, I think, affects this very, very well uh, because we do two things, which is that we bring organizations who kind of have already a viewpoint in, in agriculture in general. So I'm thinking um, animal welfare people in kind of the animal agriculture movement, um, environmentalists who are also very concerned about this, health advocates who are very concerned about this. Um, and we, you know, we work together. I think that no one can do it all. So when I can use resources other people have developed and share those more widely when they have that expertise, that's great. Uh, and then the other thing we do is that there are so many organizations that are looking to include more agriculture into their work. And so what we do is try to facilitate that to understand what are the barriers. Uh, the common barriers are knowledge, um, finances. So a lot of the major nonprofits are funded by the meat and dairy lobby. So that often kind of limits um, or gives a perceived limit of what they can and can't work on. And so we look for to try to help identify those barriers and help as much as we can with the understanding that, you know, I'll put in some work into maybe develop adding agriculture to one of their educational programs, and they get to go off and do all of that wonderful work, including agriculture, even though it's kind of a small amount of time on my end. So that's kind of the first population we touch is working with other organizations to build that scope and that legitimacy. Uh, the second is knowledge mobilization. So I think I'm someone who can be very critical of those kind of one-off educational presentations. Um, I'm sure that you've seen many of those that they're very interesting in the moment, but when you walk out the door, you don't really remember any of it. Um, and so we're really conscious not to do that. So I do think education is a big gap in agriculture that we need to have a better understanding of education to kind of go forward. Um, and so we try to do that in very tangible ways. So when we're designing our lessons, we spend as much time thinking about how we're designing them, the way we're transmitting information, how receptive people have been, looking at how past kind of events have gone as much as we put in the content itself. Because it really doesn't matter what I'm saying if people aren't retaining it. 
So this means that for knowledge mobilization, often when we're in classrooms, we're giving students the direct ability to use their learnings to affect change, which I think is very empowering. And it brings them um, a lot of kind of joy to really be able to see that they can affect the world. So that's often the chance that students don't get. Um, and it really, I think, lessens that gap that we need, we have a societal lack of awareness of how severe these issues are. So I really hope that that's kind of what we're doing there. Um, and then the last is policy campaigns. So obviously this is us directly affecting government. So I think that the government uh, is something that people really, I think, don't, uh, don't often focus on enough, that you can make so much change through the democratic system in Canada. Um, even with a very small group of people. Like, I think this is one of those, those things that people, it, it feels like there's a high barrier to entry, but there really isn't. Um, so what we do is we plan a campaign and then we uh, find volunteers across Canada who are interested in supporting this campaign. And we facilitate trainings and we help them kind of schedule meetings with their MPs. And that uh, I think is really, really important. Um, so our current one is on cultivated meat. So this is the process of taking cells and growing them in a food production facility to create meat. So this isn't a veggie burger, it is meat, but it's not made with slaughtering an animal. It's made with the reproduction of cells. Um, and this has uh, a lot of benefits. So obviously the welfare concerns are really significant um, with the current process for meat and taking the animals out of it, um, it, it's just, it's really important kind of for their overall well-being. The amount of animals we're slaughtering, um, it's about, we currently have about 80 billion animals on earth um, who will be slaughtered. And so it's, it's an enormous amount. And I think we can't discount that. Um, the second thing is, of course, there's so many less resources going into cultivating meat than there is traditional meat. Um, so you and I are probably very familiar with this concept, but animals are not actually designed to be meat-making machines. And in fact, like they're not particularly good at it. Um, just like, you know, you and I, we have grown up and we have many different components and most of the components in my body are not designed to create fat or to create substance. It's to, you know, give me lungs so I can breathe, help me digest food, um, let me run around and, and do all of those things. And animals are, of course, designed the same way. So the most extreme example of this is beef. So uh, when you think of meat, it's really just kind of the most, the most inefficient process. Uh, because for cows, we have to feed them 25 calories for every calorie we get out. So you can think about that, that for a steak, you have to throw out pretty much 25 plates of pasta for one steak, which doesn't make any sense when you think about it. Um, so this process of growing meat is a lot more efficient. It doesn't take the same amount of time. Um, the resources that you're putting in are directly going to growing meat. And so it's just much more efficient. Um, and then from the health angle that we, that I, when we've looked at kind of the issues with antibiotic resistance, um, with zoonotic diseases, that when we take out our relationship with animals, that it's much safer. So you you are much the more likely to, to infect cultivated meat than cultivated meat is to infect you um, versus the meat that we're currently eating, which it, it all of it has fecobacteria on it, which is very unsafe to be eaten long-term. Uh, it's also quite gross. Um, and so I think that we've shown that this is a bad way. So to kind of take that back to the broader level, uh, what we do is we interact with MPs kind of give them an understanding of this product and help them understand why Canada really needs to remove the barriers for the industry to succeed in Canada. 
because that that's, this will be one of the crucial ways forward. Uh, and I think that governments using those tools is one of the best ways to make change. Yeah, I think there, there, every component is probably going to be necessary to get to the to where we're going. And I just want to um, I want to get you to sketch out when you reimagine agriculture. Say everything goes according to plan, and you succeed beyond your wildest dreams. And um, ten years from now, what does the world look like? What what does land usage look like? Uh, what is, what does the profit motive? Where is the profit motive in in our food system, uh, and uh, yeah, all these all these I'll just I'll just let you answer. Yeah, go ahead. I I love that question. Um, I get to think about it sometimes, and it's really wonderful too because I think that a lot of these issues we can make a lot of progress, and so I think you know maybe we won't get to the ideal, but I think that in twenty years uh, I really believe we'll have be having a much better conversation about this. Um, I would put it overall that I think that the industry, it's kind of the idea of the, the circular economy concept, or I think just the recognition of like, this is a system um, that we really need to focus on not being inefficient. And I think I, I don't love the word inefficient because it's very clinical, it's very cold. When of course, what inefficiency looks like is human lives, um, it's people not having enough to eat. It's animals who, who live in horrendous conditions for their entire lives. Um, so, you know, know that uh, kind of to think about all of that when I'm seeing inefficiencies. But I think it would be designing a system that is meant to serve society. Um, right now, we really have kind of focused on the commoditization of food. Uh, so I'll focus on kind of food waste for a second, just because I talked a little bit about animal agriculture. Uh, so food waste is a very, very significant problem in Canada. 58% of food grown is wasted. So over half the food we're producing isn't getting eaten. Um, that's a really severe consequence. And when you think about that in terms of land, you know, over half the land that we're using doesn't need to be used. Um, over half the water we're using. So it's, it's this really, really incredible amount when, when you break it down and how much of, of an effect that that has. Uh, so I think that, and why food waste is occurring is that right now, at every single level, people want to make sure that they're always delivering on orders, um, they always have enough supply. If you go into a grocery store, you never see a shelf that's really only like partially stocked. Um, so everyone kind of at every level has built in excess into the system, that they expect that, oh, some of this will get thrown out because I need to have it just in case, just to fill up this order. And this has really gone time to extreme levels, especially when this is happening at every single stage of the system, um, which I should mention includes households as well. Uh, at the home, we throw out a ton of food. Uh, refrigerators keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So people are putting more and more and more food in there that they cannot possibly eat all of it before it's due. So I think that as we kind of move forward, what I'm really hoping for is that even when these effects are not as tangible, even when it's not as clear, um, hey, if I'm if I'm throwing out more food than I need to be, or hey, if there are some apples being left on the farm, really making sure that we are taking account all of the externalities that are happening. That we're, when we're eating meat, um, that there is an understanding that, like this, you know, this is a really inefficient process. So I think the ideal for me would be, um, you know, I, I don't think. I think that there will always be at least a little bit of food waste, but I think addressing the vast majority of it would be great. Um, I think that our current system for animal agriculture has to, we, we cannot continue that. Um, so 
factory farms, especially um, the safety risks involved, the animal welfare risks involved. Uh, we really need to move away from that and really move into other ways of getting uh, nutrients. And so I think one, we have to focus a lot more on plants in, in North America and in wealthy countries. It's really important for our nutrition. And I think that uh, for some people, cultivated meat might be a part of their diet. For some people, it might not be. Um, but I think something like that, that we really understand all of the effects that are going on. We really can capture all of the waste and really take that on, that it's not, oh, this is a nice thing to try to prevent food waste, but to understand I'm a vital component of a food system that works. And so I have a responsibility, just like everyone else in the food system has a responsibility. So yeah, so so for the for the random person, say in Canadian society, um, you're not saying you have to change what you're doing that much, really. You're talking about a systems level systems level change. So I can talk about kind of the two things which I think people should do, um, which is that uh, we should yeah we should reduce our meat intake. Um, we should do that personally. Uh, we need to do that. And we should try to reduce the amount of food waste. But yes, absolutely that you're right that a lot of the changes needs to happen, especially for food waste, is on the systems wide level. That's where I think the majority of the change needs to occur because that's the system is the reason that we eat the way we do. I just want to bring up a conversation. I was talking to my brother yesterday and we were, uh, mm -hmm. I asked him, we were watching the playoffs and talking about, you know, the violence in the game. And I asked them, you know, would you, if you were plucked and transplanted back into gladiator times, would you be, would you watch gladiator games, blood sport? And he said, of course not. I don't like the UFC. It's just, this is unnecessarily, unnecessarily violent. And, and we're better than that as a species. We can, we don't have to keep doing those things. I was like, wow, you sound very vegan right now. <laughs> you sound like, uh. <laughs> You get where I'm coming from. And we kind of, we laughed about it. But when I laughed, I, we it came back around to that conversation of like, you know, if the powers, if the adults in the room said, hey, we have to do this, he would be on board with it. Everybody would go along because it's so vital to the survival of, you know, the human race, really, mm -hmm. when you get down to it, you know. Um, I made the comparison, uh, the, the analogy of like, we're kind of like going off a cliff and the Elon Musk's of the world are building parachutes for themselves, but all of uh, the rest of us in the car, we can build a, a, a landing spot or something. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. yeah, I don't see how corporate the the corporate and the government uh, pressures alone can can will will change things. But so so I'm wondering if that uh, engagement with the public for real pressure. Um, have you been thinking about like what do you think of the farmers' strikes in India? Like do you think that relates mm -hmm. to this struggle? And do you think we you could you know incur? Do you think a general strike will have to be on the table to force governments and corporations to listen 
to reason. Yeah, I mean, I think you you went over a lot there that I think I can really identify with, um, which is kind of the first thing that you were saying about the gladiators and and that and like you know if you were born there, uh, you know, my first thought is is you know if I was born in those times, there's a very likely chance that I would be the person going to gladiator events because that would have been the culture I grew up in. It would have made perfect sense to me, um, and I think in, in many ways that's great news to know that if that we can change our culture very rapidly. Um, often, you know, if you ever want to know what, what people like and dislike in terms of food, the best way to know that is to get them to hand you their passport. Uh, because most of us, it's just wherever we grew up, it's whatever we grew up eating. Um, and the wonderful, wonderful news about this is that it can change both, you know, literally that we see that change in the world, but even uh, taste buds. Taste buds absolutely evolve and adapt. Um, our gut bacteria, like it's insane how much our gut bacteria changes based on just what you're eating that day or that week. Like it makes, you know, a clinical difference. You can measure the difference uh, seen kind of with one meal versus another meal. So that's wonderful news that we can change these things so rapidly. And even for food, often I hear, oh, you know, whatever it is for that person, I couldn't give up, give up this thing, or this is the one thing that's important to me. Um, and one, you know, if you if you have, I think, a few exceptions to a very sustainable diet, I think that that's much better than a totally unsustainable diet. Um, but even more than that, I think the wonderful news for me as I, I you know, I've ate, I ate in a way that was very unhealthy when I was growing up. Um, and since then I've changed. And for me, I think people often probably look at all of the greens I'm eating and would be like, oh, I wouldn't enjoy her diet nearly as much as I enjoy my diet. But the truth is that my taste buds have evolved to eat what I'm eating and I love what I eat every day. So I think that we can kind of see that as really positive news that if, as we adjust the system, it's not like people are going to be born saying, oh, we need to, we need to add that food waste back into the system. Like we really need to get that component in there. It's that people will kind of adapt to the system they're born in. Um, yeah. So I think that the, I think that the change, there's, there's a lot of power, no matter who you are, no matter where you are. Um, if you, if you have the ability to listen to this podcast, you want to probably you're probably in the 10% most powerful people in the world. Very few people have had this access of wealth, um, of internet, um, of resources. And so you absolutely do have a lot of power. And I think it's important to kind of own that in a world that 90% of people don't have that power. Most people live on less than $1 a day. Um, so keep that power in mind. That being said, of course, um, we do need to make system-wide changes. So the most, like an individual making a difference. And I don't say this to um, make anyone feel kind of like their efforts are less valid, but one person doing one thing in their lives differently, if that is truly the only fact that they're not having any ripple effects or anything like that, that's not gonna be measured on a statistical scale. We really won't be able to see the effects of that. So we really have to look at how can we affect if it's in a smaller way or in a bigger way, the system. Um, and so to counter this story, I'll tell this, which is that the first person I ever knew was vegan uh, was a random guy at my high school. And I didn't know him. We weren't friends. Um, I don't think I knew his last name, uh, but I knew that he was vegan. And I knew that he was on the track team. So I'd see him walking around in a low track outfit. And at the time I was like, I, I was just kind of like, well, you know, if he's on the track team, 
like he seems to be okay. And it was kind of my first introduction. And this is just to say that, you know, very rarely are the effects that we just have for ourselves um, only affecting ourselves. Because years after that, I, uh, I ended up going totally plant-based. And I think that, you know, his example of that, which is something that he would have no idea about, um, really was the thing that pushed me into that. Um, that I think that that was my first way into the movement. So I think it is a mix that when we're looking to make change, it's great to make change in your own life. I think that's really important. Um, and I think it's really fulfilling, but also looking for how can we change these larger systems in the way that we can. Um, I think a lot of a lot of emphasis can be put on governing corporations through government. Um, that is what government's meant to do is to create regulations. And so I think uh, that that can be a really, really great way to make change. But, but if you are in the corporate system or if you work for a corporation, there are still a lot of potentials you have there. You have, you know, industry standards that you can help set. Um, but I think realistically, it has to kind of be all three that we, as people, we need to be pushing our governments to make sure they really do hear our concerns um, because they will not hear them if we are not speaking them. And if we're not advocating for them, they will not be able to respond to them. Um, in our individual lives, uh, I think there's a huge power in community change, in local scale change. Um, I've seen amazing transformations in those. Um, and then for corporations, I think making sure that uh, there is kind of that triple bottom line, that there is a circular economy going, um, that those things will be absolutely crucial in terms of making change long term. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I see... I see this as uh, kind of a an Angela Davis sort of take of like liberation for all. So even if you did, even if it didn't make any difference, um, just it would be the right thing to do. Um, but it, it does actually make a difference. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wanted to like, do you see this as a social justice struggle in in the way of like you know once we stop um forcibly breeding and slaughtering billions tens of billions of of sentient beings do you think that would kind of is that intimately connected with the way we treat other human beings mm -hmm. yeah i mean I, I totally agree with you i think we can understand kind of every global issue as a justice issue when we think about it. And I think that's something we're starting to put together. Um, all of the intersections that, that everything brings, because that's what every issue really boils down to is being a justice issue. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sure the listeners to your podcast will become more aware of animal issues than most. Uh, I think that when we look at animals, we are there's more and more absolute evidence that they do feel pain and pleasure the way we do. Um, and that they have um, opinions and minds um, and that they, that they are really living in very traumatizing lives. I, I think that when we look at the idea of like, what would our gods be like? Uh, I think we often picture very benevolent gods and gods who care about us personally a lot. Um, which I think is interesting when we do not share those creatures for creatures who would, we are kind of the gods too, um, who we control their lives and we do not extend that benevolence. Uh, I'm hoping that 
Yeah, I think that my personal opinion is that as we move away from meat, that that cognitive dissonance will loosen a lot. I think that frankly, that that's something that a lot of people experience is because they're eating meat every day. It's very hard to conceive of an animal as a living, breathing creature because you don't want to think of yourself as a person who would do that. Um, and studies consistently show that uh, after people are served a meal with like that doesn't have meat, and then they talk about how much, uh, you know, how much intelligence sentience animals have, that they rate it much higher versus when they eat a meal that just has meat and then they get spilled the survey, they'll rate those things a lot lower um, because it, it's, it's really hard to conceive. And I don't think anyone truly wants to be doing that. Um, but I think it's just kind of a product of the system. So I'm hoping that as we shift our food system, that will give us an understanding of, yeah, the, the needs of other beings. Um, whether it's humans beings and the idea that people are going, people going without food in, in this life is just unacceptable. We really have no justification for it. We absolutely have the food, the resources, the technology, the know-how to make sure that everyone has food. Um, and at the same token, like look at the scale of the destruction that we are putting animals through. Um, it's, it's something that I think for generations and generations, they will not forgive us for. And I think rightly so. Um, it's, it's hard to even kind of think about the amount of suffering. And hopefully I think that we will hopefully be the last generation to ever inflict this much suffering, uh, that we are developing the technologies that we need to, to not do that. And that I think that as justice continues to be a part of our conversations and as we all gain a better understanding of how to treat each other, um, that that uh, animals and agriculture will have to be a part of that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's hard to, to articulate that to people who eat meat still, who mm -hmm. believe in justice, right? I find that one of the hard, most difficult topics to, 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 you know, mm -hmm. talk about with people who don't share my, share all my views, but it, it's so important. And I think the good thing is like, we're seeing that uh, a lot of people have different ways into it. It is a difficult thing to talk about. Um, even for me, even when I was largely plant-based, I didn't share the views that I now have on animals um, because at first it, it just kind of wasn't, yeah, it wasn't as clear to me as it should have been. Um, and I think that what we're seeing is that as people are often transitioning the biggest reason right now that we're seeing people transition to plant-based lifestyles or away from meat is their health. Um, so that's, you know, a personal thing. Uh, and I think that the great thing we're seeing is that as people transition for their health, like that's when their mind is able to open up and to expand, to kind of conceive these arguments that for them at first, you know, they sounded insane, that, that there's nothing that they could grasp on with that argument. Um, and I think all of us can see this in ourselves. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't know about you, but for me, Absolutely, almost every big idea that I now believe, the first time it was presented to me, I didn't, I wasn't like, yes, this is the clear way forward, 100%. Um, you know, and I always kind of use the illusion, like, if you're going to try to talk to someone about Buddhism, you're not going to go, hey, come live in a monastery, because they are not going to be on board. It might be a book or something else. Uh, not to say that, you know, uh, that's just kind of using that example. Um, but yeah, that I think that hopefully as people are finding ways in, um, it's hard. I, I 
it's hard to be patient with people learning when you feel like you legitimately don't have time for them to learn because they need to already get to the point of understanding. Um, but I've, I've seen a lot of encouraging signs of how people have gotten more and more there over the years. Yeah. And uh, so do you, going back to the political engagement, is it, mm-hmm. do you find it uh, difficult to get people to engage politically and um, like for me there there's an obvious cynicism with politics right now like it's Mm -hmm. it seems like people are in the streets demanding change and not much is happening Um, Mm -hmm. so there's this capture of government by what seems like corporate interest right I don't see what else it is. It's the, you know, military industrial complex, imperialism, colonialism, all that stuff. So how do we break through that, those barriers of like, are they listening? Are they even, is this just, am I just spinning my tires? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a great question. I really love that. I spend so much time thinking about that. Um, and, and yeah, how to engage uh, constructively. So I think the first thing I'll point out is, well, the reason people don't know how to can engage politically is we've never taught them. <laughs> like it makes no sense, you know, even in school, you know, if you, you know, if you go to high school, you never have a class on this is who your MP is. This is, this is who, you know, this is how you talk to them. This is how you schedule a meeting. This is kind of what that meeting will look like. Um, so in reality, the barriers to entry can feel very high if because probably you've never done an MP meeting, probably none of your friends have done an MP meeting. Um, so it can feel really, really daunting versus things that are pretty immediate that you can do, like protests or posting on social media. These are tools that we're all very familiar with. Um, that being said, I think that engaging with politics is, in an effective way, is crucial and that the amount of change you can make is insane. So in Canada, we have about, I'll say, 350 MPs. Um, And if you think about it, you could probably, any average person listening to this podcast, if they put enough work into it, they could probably get a protest with 100 people going. You know, if you share it on social media, you do all that. Now, imagine if you took those 100 people, you know, did a little training beforehand, and then sent them all off to talk to their MPs. This means that elected leaders, um, almost like about almost a third of them, have now heard this message that people are saying, I want this and I will come to you and advocate for this. Is you my elected leader? Uh, because something I've learned that it's, um, it can be annoying, but it's true, is that MPs like to be talked to in the way they like to be talked to. They are not as, that protest I think can be a really key way of getting them to listen, but also when you show up and you're dressed nicely and you've got articulate points to say, and that you are showing an interest in them and their work, I mean, I think any of us can know like, yeah, that's going to be that that's going to be mind blowing. Just kind of like if you're going to go to a job interview, you're going to want to show up on time. It's all the same things. And so all of us kind of understand this, I think, in some ways. But the same process applies to MPs. And so the amount of traction you can get with MPs is huge. That being said, yes, as you said, people are very hesitant to engage with politics. Um, that's actually been one of the biggest surprises for me at Reimagine Agriculture is it's been super hard to find people 
for this policy campaign. Um, and I think it's a lot of people are very intimidated to talk to their MP. Uh, it's someone who, you know, you don't necessarily really understand your connection with, you know that they're a very important person. You really don't understand maybe what they do or what their day to day is like or how you can talk to them effectively. Uh, but I think the, the key points that I would just hit on is one, you know, MPs are people just like anyone else. They can absolutely be convinced. And MPs, they are they are there for you to schedule meetings with them. Um, you know, I know that you are you have quite a good relationship with your MP, and I'm sure that like she's been very appreciative of it, I'm sure, because yeah, you're showing up, you're talking, you're engaging with her on issues that she cares about, on issues that you care about. And it's a, probably a very positive relationship. Um, and I'm sure that all of us maybe have MPs who there's some stuff we really agree with, there's some stuff we maybe really disagree with. Uh, but just knowing that they are elected, their job is to listen to you and advocate for your concerns. So this is the person that you have to talk to. This is kind of your number one supporter uh, in, in making kind of large scale change. Yeah, most people seem to think that we work for the government or we work <laughs> for the country rather than our government is supposed to work for us, right? Um, it's, it's all, it's all backwards. It's all mm -hmm. upside down. Yeah. People think to, people think that they have no power in the system. Meanwhile, we are without us, there would be no system. There would be no power, our labor, our participation. Yeah. We need more civics lessons for sure. But, um, but yeah, it's, that's why, that's why we have these conversations, right? Just to get people to, um, be more inclined to take back their power or to realize that they do have that power, you know, to affect change or just. And if I, I can kind of do a little plug to say that, you know, for us in our policy campaign uh, training, that obviously I think you, you are someone who already is very knowledgeable with both these concepts and not always have talked to your MP. Um, but that's something we specifically try to provide that we have uh, two trainings with independent activities. So if you are one, if you are interested in rematch agriculture and specifically our policy campaign, please reach out. But hopefully, I, I've designed it specifically and hopefully that yes, we can accomplish our brief and all of that. But hopefully I'm also training advocates to say, here's all the resources you need to understand how to have an MP meeting. So yes, I want you to have this MP meeting, but also hopefully after this, you go on and use that skill and have many, many, many more MP meetings uh, on the issues that you care about. The last thing I want to say or just talk or mention is um, this process of cellular agriculture. We've already been doing it, right? People think that it, it's not, it's not, it's new and it's all strange. It's actually, can, can you help normalize it by just talking about the facts of like, for example, rennet and cheese, right? Or, you know, how, how normal this process already is. Yeah. So I, I absolutely kind of understand people's initial um, kind of fear around cultivating meat, that it's a new phenomenon. And as well, humans, we are really wired to make sure our food is safe. Like that is, is such a fear for us. Um, kind of, we've evolved to really hold that fear of like, make sure the food you eat is safe because for a long time, when the food you eat wasn't safe, you died. <laughs> and so we are very wired to believe this. And so, um, so yes, yeah, so what the technology is at space level, I'll kind of explain it um, as best I can, but they take cells from an animal and then they put it in a serum. Um, so we can think of that like, you know, if you were, if you were growing a baby, uh, you know, you have the cells and they have kind of their little 
placenta and they have all the nutrients they need and they kind of grow and expand. And so we are just doing that same process um, just outside the body. So we use cells, we put them in a serum that has the nutrients they need and those cells start to expand and grow. And at a certain point, they differentiate. So all the cells in our body don't do the same things. So we have, you know, muscle cells and fat cells. Um, and this is actually one of the more complicated part of uh, building cultivating meat because uh, animals' bodies are very well designed. And so replicating that can be difficult. Um, but that's where we get into the process of differentiation. So making sure we've got this amount of fat, this amount of muscle, that type of thing. And then, you know, we just continue along that process until you formally form a piece of meat. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of people have this hesitation because it does feel new and scary. But it's important to understand that one, we wouldn't be able to build this technology, especially not this rapidly, unless we had a very strong history of scientific advances. Um, so the first cultivated meat burger debuted on stage in 2013 um, and it's 2021. And so that's not actually a very long amount of time, especially when it's still a very underground thing. Uh, it's starting to kind of pick up in, in the corporate world or in the capital venture capitalist world that this is something they should be funding, but it's really something that's still very underground. But when we've gone from 2013 to 2021, we're already seeing uh, the first purchases happening in the world. The only reason we've been able to build that much and expand that much is because we had a long history using cell-based technologies. Um, so we already use them in uh, kind of, yeah, we use cell technologies in a lot of things. Like you mentioned, uh, one of them is you know prosthetics and like developing that. Uh, we've also used it in even kind of like plant-based burgers. We've used a cellular technology, but it's a very well understood developed scientific technology. And so what we're doing is we take all of our learnings from those very diverse fields and go, okay, you know this is most of what we need. How do we use this knowledge and turn it into this product? How do we kind of apply this? Um, and it's been it's a really interesting stage we're in. I think in the next few years, that's when we'll start seeing them on the market uh, everywhere, cultivated meat products, because that level of innovation has happened. But yes, absolutely, we would not be able to be here without all of the innovation that had previously happened. But let's get to this point. Great. And uh, yeah, is there is there anything else that you'd want to make sure people know about this or, or talk about before we close out the interview? Sure. So if you are, are interested in kind of um, what I've discussed or, or any of the issues I've brought up, you can definitely find us at reimagineagriculture.org. Uh, we're always looking for policy campaign volunteers if you're interested in that. We also just put up a bunch of new volunteer postings. So if you want to get involved or if there's something that struck a chord with you, I definitely encourage you to check those out. We've got a very strong team and we're, we're very lucky for that collaboration. As well, if you're able, donations help us a lot. So for us, it's very important that we are independent, nonpartisan, um, and that means that uh, we really count on our donors. And we, I think something that I didn't understand too was in the nonprofit world is that who's donating to you really affects what you're able to do. Um, and so if I'm getting donations from corporations and that would be driving the majority of my revenue, often there's a lot of very strict conditions of what they want me to do, what I have to follow with them, what they're doing. Uh, so if, yeah, if people are able to donate and are aligned with our mission, that for us is the ideal kind of, uh, it's a really wonderful source of donations because then we can really mutually build this organization together. Thanks so much for, for, for doing this interview. Um, I, I really hope that uh, you make a lot of progress uh, 
in this area because it's it would just change so much in the world reduce suffering by mag like you know mo the majority of the suffering on the planet if you want to be real right yeah it's i think that there's you know i i definitely struggle with how bad things are they are very very bad and the, the more i understand all of these issues the more i understand just how bad they are uh but i think what we can see is that frankly we haven't like had the opportunity to have focused a dedicated work and that a lot of these things will we will be able to change significantly with the with even kind of just an adequate amount of effort and funding uh, and energy that like, I think in our lifetimes, we're going to come out with a much better agricultural system than we currently have. And so that's something that hopefully we can look forward to and hopefully that can be motivating in our work. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. I see these great ideas and that's what we need because that's what, when you're in a crisis, the, the ideas that are lying around, those are the ones that will get picked up and, and, and run with, right? So yeah, more good ideas in the world. Wonderful, thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, it's been a wonderful time getting to talk to you today. Great, thanks so much, Allison. Thanks, bye. Bye. Thanks so much, Allison, for that great chat, and thank you for listening. Until next time.